If you have your Bibles, our scripture reading for the sermon today is found in Ecclesiastes 2. Ecclesiastes 2, 12 through 26. So if you have your Bible, please turn there now as we hear from God and read our sermon text this morning. Ecclesiastes 2, 12 through 26. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will, all, will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? But to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after win. This is our, thus concludes our reading of God's word. Amen? Amen. Repent. Die to. Cut off. Confront. Turn away from. Put to death. Flee. Admonish. Make war. Hate. This and many other ways of saying it are ways that the Bible says that me and you are to treat sin. This is what we're to do with sin. This is the calling of being a Christian. But we live in a day where many call themselves Christ followers, believe in God, etc., and yet oftentimes want to do the exact opposite of that list. How can the human heart, the human mind, be so fickle, be so double-minded, dualistic? How can one claim righteousness but love iniquity. It's because we are producers 
of sin. Our hearts are given over to sin easily, and we give in to sin even easier than that. You know, John Calvin famously quoted, says, the human heart is a factory of idols. Maybe you've heard that before about us poor creatures and what Calvin concluded. Um, The actual quote from the Institute says, uh, says it like this, we may infer that the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols. So what we call the heart, uh, he calls the mind, and a factory is better than a forge, you know, for us because, you know, we forge in our factories now today with robots that build our cars and our iPhones, super chips and all that. But in, in Calvin's day, the forge was the blacksmith. So a uh, little less known. However, shortly after that famous quote is another thing that he says that I think is very pointed for our introduction today. Also describing the heart, the human mind. Calvin said this, the human mind, stuffed as it is with presumptuous rashness, dares to imagine a God suited to its own capacity. As it labors under dullness, nay, is sunk in the grossest ignorance. The heart substitutes vanity and an empty phantom in the place of God. To these evils, another is added. The God whom man has thus conceived inwardly, he attempts to embody outwardly. The heart, the mind in this way, conceives the idol but the hand gives its birth. You see, the mind, think about that. The mind conceives idols and sin, and then the hands give birth to it. This happens under a presumptuous rashness, Calvin says. This is a fancy way for saying we as people are sinful know-it-alls. He speaks to us this morning like the preacher of Ecclesiastes, I think, just like you heard read. This factory of your heart that you can put your hand on right now and feel thumping as you would reach deeper into your gut. This is the idea here. It is producing vanity after vanity as a substitution. He called it an empty phantom in the place of God. That's what the heart does well on its own. You know, since the start of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, this preacher, the collector, who we have concluded is likely Solomon, um, we we think, uh, but certainly someone writing as Solomon, has brought various vices to our attention. We are searching for meaning in this life as we come to this sermon series, as we come to this book. Ecclesiastes offers wisdom to us, but it's done so by examining this uh, idol-producing factory of the heart. It's examined folly and study of the wrong in this book, the low, the, 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 the burden in this book will hopefully produce in us the right. That's what we hope for. So Solomon has studied thus far the cycles of nature. He's looked at them with envy. Uh, he He can't put a finger on why his monotonous, boring life can't be like the wind and the water and the seas. He's told us that, that he's sought it in pleasure. He's looked for the world to be his, to have what is everything the world can give that is pleasant and wonderful and beautiful and good, but it's also left him vain. It's left him empty. His only answer so far has been what? Hebel, right? This word we've said is like a deep sigh. It's like another failed notch in the belt of life. What can fix his heart? What can give his mind something rather than running amok? Well, this morning, he dives into the dangers and some warnings of a few topics before turning and giving his heart where it should be given. This morning, we'll see that he gives his heart wrongly to folly. He gives his heart wrongly to wisdom. He gives his heart wrongly to work. 
rather than giving his heart where he should, giving his heart to God. The preacher says the forge of his heart has turned him to consider some warnings that we consider with him this morning in 2021. Let's look at the first one. We see we're warned to not give our hearts to folly. This first warning really needs no introduction if someone has half a brain, right? If anybody has any kind of common sense, um, you know, what, what do the lives of people you know reveal about what they think will make them happy? Think about that question for a second. Think about the people you know and what they think will make them happy. What does it reveal about their own hearts? Instagram posts or Facebook pages boast of vacation spots, new cars, new partners, new friend groups, some new event, maybe a new food, a gadget, or some other created thing. Simple enough thought that so many fall into bed with, sometimes literally, is this foolishness, this folly under the sun, right? And we shouldn't give our hearts to it. The author of Ecclesiastes is, is no fool when it comes to this, right? He's fully understood it. Look at verse 12 where we started reading today. He did turn to consider again wisdom. And he says madness and folly. You can, in verse 1 there, in verse 12 I mean, you can see he sets his sights on madness and folly for a little bit of the conversation this morning. He's talking about loose living. You notice in that verse he brought up the king. He said, what can somebody do after they follow a king? Like, what's the next king in line supposed to have? Is it YOLO? You only live your life once? I mean, he said he was the greatest of all time when it came to partying and having pleasure, the folly-driven uh, life. He, he, he did it. And now he's saying, as the goat of pleasure, uh, hey, I'm not satisfied. And he warns us here. And he understands as the author of Proverbs, which is a, a wisdom book to, that should be married with Ecclesiastes if we're going to get the full meaning, he understands folly, the invitation for us to not give our hearts to it. He understands folly um, the, way the, the way the writer in Proverbs does. Listen to this. Folly is personified. Imagine folly as a person. The woman folly, Proverbs 9.13 says, is loud. She's seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat at the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. This is what she says. Folly says, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But, the proverb says, he does not know that the dead are there with her that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. You know this kind of loudmouth person, don't you? I think you do. Maybe somebody who does something commonly vulgar at the wrong time. Uh, the idiot that we all laugh at at the baseball game. But deep down, it's sad to see how drunk he is with that popcorn bucket on his head trying to start the wave, right? Someone... Uh, in Solomon's day would have, would have maybe filled his house with it. He uh, sees a difference between him as a wise and the, the mad and folly, and he tries to investigate the foolishness of vice, which we've already seen, but now he's reflecting on those things. Uh, he's thinking about the king before him, his father, David, maybe, who lived a large life, and he's now done the same, but he sees that applying his heart to the foolishness of pleasure is as broken as when his father lost uh, the first baby, his oldest brother that's now gone and because of his sin with Bathsheba. I mean, there's a lot here in the way Solomon in verse 12 is reflecting, if it be him. 
It tells us that personal examples abound. If you just think for a minute about the invitation that your heart has to commit foolishness, to, be, uh, to, to have folly, and if not you as an evangelist today, be equipped to think about your lost counterpart, your friends. Think of all the examples you have where folly is ruling this world and the invitation to live foolishly. Let me give you one example from my own life. I remember in high school, we young Hudson boys, we loved to talk about fights and we always wanted to see fights and we would always be excitedly uh, huddled around in the locker room, the latest cell phone video of somebody uh, going fisticuffs on the back road and beating each other to a pole. Uh, To my shame, I even found myself in a couple of different times of brawling this way, foolish fighting for glory and pride in high school. Folly, like that proverb said, bid me and all my young friends to come die with her, to get expelled, to get in trouble with parents, to sin. And yet, a couple years later, I find myself in college. And the same experience was now experienced by me differently. You see, uh, in college, a, fr- a group of our friends, had, uh, godly friends, had gone down to Denton, Texas. We were going two-stepping one night, uh, just dancing and enjoying each other as Christians. We were, uh, you know, seeking to honor God. It was a different world. We walked out that night of, of dancing, and there were some college men that were beating each other to a pulp in the parking lot. And uh, it was too much for one of our friends, a brother in Christ who uh, had a similar story of fighting and brawling in high school. He wept over the situation. It hit me differently as well. In that moment, I saw the folly for what it was. My heart wasn't captured anymore by the vainglory of thinking I'm someone when I'm hurting another. Instead, my heart knew the truth now, and I realized my own foolishness. I mean, the point's simple. This is just one example whether it's throwing down in Hudson High School parking lots or finally realizing a couple years later through wisdom by watching someone else do it, there's no gain in it. There's no gain in living this way. That's verse 13 and 14, right? That's why in 13 and 14 he says it's foolish and folly. The person that lives like that lives in darkness. They walk around with someone that doesn't have their eyes in their head. They're blind. Yet, guys, isn't it the easiest thing in the world to fall into a foolish vice, expecting gain? I mean, let's be real. The sweetest desserts are better than the vegetables, right? I mean, the drive-through is always faster than meal prepping. The party is a lot more fun than the work. And the debt for pleasure is oftentimes sold as being better than the waiting with patience. So we shouldn't rush past it, right? But listen, we have to because this is only a small portion of today's text. He's really just reflecting on what has been. You see, the scriptures say we understand this because in the last days, Paul writes to Timothy, he says that times are going to be difficult. You know why? Because people will be lovers of, and he doesn't say God. Instead, it says a long list of things that would involve folly, things like self or loving money or being proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. That's a long list. Uh, We would spend a lot of time uncovering the folly in each one of those. But here's the idea this morning. Why would Paul say avoid such people? Why is the author and the writer and the preacher of Ecclesiastes warning you this morning, don't give your heart to folly? Well, because you'll do dumb things, you'll experience bad things, and ultimately you will not be saved. You see right now there's not a saving message, there's an honest one. Hold out for hope, of course, but know this. Right now, as you read this book, uh, we have 
been told so far that it is hevel, all of it. It's vain. So just hear that. <laughs> don't give your heart to folly. Secondly, don't give your heart to wisdom wrongly. It's really the main punch. You know, the preacher, uh, he's logical with his discoveries as he presents them to us. We know that folly or anarchy, let's think about this idea of unleashing what we love and our pleasures and our passions. We know it'll bring harm, right? Like that was his point in saying he investigated it. It brings loss and pain, no gain. And we agree that wisdom will yield more. I mean, his illustration there in 13 and 14 was light and darkness, right? I mean, he picks up on the basics of what the Bible picks up from from the very beginning to its end. This idea that light is good, dark is bad. Uh, The fool will choose darkness. The wise man will choose light. And scripturally, God has made this clear, even in creation. The shapeless void and the chaos of God's spirit over it is darkness, and from it comes light. God separates the day and the night. God creates a placeholder for evil in darkness. He shows his light to be good. What is done in darkness must be exposed by the light. It's just a small bit here that the preacher admits. But the rest of verse 14 really shows us that he is slow to give his heart over to what he thinks he understands is true wisdom. Look at the last part of verse 14. He says, after saying the wise man has his eyes in his head, right? He says, yet I perceive something. I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. The same event happens to the wise. It happens to the fool. It happens to the person who would choose folly, just like the person who would walk in wisdom. And for the first time, but for not the last, the real chess move of Ecclesiastes is being pushed into the conversation. And let me tell you what it is. It's not a happy topic. Death. Death and dying is what he perceives to happen to all of these that he's listed for you this morning. He, in the spirit of Psalm 49, says, for he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid. You like that? The Bible calls people stupid. <laughs> Thought about my girls when I put this together because we don't say stupid in our house because we don't like that word. It's rude. And yet here's the Bible saying that if you would not trust God and trust your own self, you would be one who is stupid. The fool and the stupid alike perish and they leave their wealth to others just like the wise. The preacher sees this as another major development. I hope you do and can get with it this morning as well to help your own life, to help your own heart get something to gain. But he says that, that you, uh, he perceives this dying. And if you look at the next verse, it becomes really clear. He says in his heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? He said in his heart, this also is vanity. We're talking about wisdom, and to think of death as something that can teach us about wisdom is a bit tricky, right? Because think about what death does. Death comes as a shock. Death comes as a, a systematic shock, something we can't stop being surprised by, but something we can't stop. Death is a teacher of sorts. It demands your attention. It's sharp. Most of the time, it's untimely. If you misplace it, you're going to be consumed, and it's grief. You have to figure out death. The preacher realizes how audacious he's being to compare himself to some fool negatively when the fool is going to do the same things under the sun as he does on a lot of levels. 
You see, it's easy when you're foolish with others to understand the folly and not give your heart to it. Even harder still is to be wiser, to be above some foolish people and then still understand that you need help. You see, he's realizing that the fool runs the same race of life as him. Now, the fool may not have ate as much of him. The fool may have served all of that buffet, but the fool didn't die the next day. Solomon saw him the next day. You know why? Because he went home and ate something. He ate something. The fool learned the same lessons. He may not have had, may not have had a thousand uh, women, that is, 700 wives and princesses and 300 concubines to have children with, but the fool at least had a, a, a marriage, he sees, and brings children into the world just like him. The fool really isn't that much different by comparison when it comes to this great leveler of death. Look at his question, the way he asks himself. He says, why then have I been so very wise? I think he's doing this mockingly. He's mocking his wisdom in his old age of thinking that somehow along the way he had separated himself on his own in some identifiable way before God. But look what he says, guys. It's Hebel. It's a breath. It's like chasing wind to think that way. You see, in verse 13, what was an honest thing about wisdom being good, it gets suspended immediately right now because of death. He can't touch it again. And I think this is why Doug Wilson says it really well. He says, quote, the wise man, a wise man, is disgusted that he has no reason for trusting his reason. The wise man has no wisdom in the foundation for his wisdom. That's the problem here. It's, he's being exposed by death as not even knowing truly where his wisdom, truly where his reasoning was coming from. To separate him from folly and to give him a life good, he needed a source for it. And not finding it came to him when he realized in his old age, death will take me just like others. And so he suspends it. He just pauses. He pauses for a minute what it means to be wise. And think with me for a while about death. By verse 16, it, you know, it's clear. Even wisdom can be unwise as an ultimate goal. And I love that this argument that he makes for why you should not give your heart, that there's a wrong way to give your heart to wisdom. It's a careful argument, but I love it because what, what he really gets at is you, he, you notice, you don't understand him thinking this unless he's comparing himself to something. You see, in the, in the middle of this, in the heat of this confession about what is vanity about this topic, he says he knows it only as he compares it. Solomon acknowledges that the wise and the fool, hear the contradiction, are certainly different for good reason, but in an ultimate sense, you're not going to be able to conclude anything that will actually help you about it. It's like this, despite isolated efforts to remember those in your past or famous people's accomplishments, there's this general principle observed here. Everyone perishes. Everyone dies. This is what makes everyone common. One commentator said, everyone quietly assumes room temperature, regardless of what they've done. Kind of a weird word take on death. But it's true. Everyone will quietly assume room temperature. The conclusion is reached for him. The wise and the fool, neither of them escape death. So you don't give your heart to it. Don't, you don't, in other words, you don't thank yourself more than you are. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Your life is to be lived on different terms than what you deem to be wise and profitable and right. If you give your heart to the strength of your own efforts, you will conclude like the preacher does here in the next verse. 
Look at verse 17. Here's the, here's the wrong response when you don't handle wisdom rightly. Verse 17 says that he hated life. He hated it. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun, he says, was grievous to me for all his vanity and his striving after wind. Okay, temporary hope in wisdom gives way to the crushing reality of death and its leveling ability. It, it, it pressed Paul's on wisdom, right? And, 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 and the preacher despairs. He hates his life. That's the answer he comes up with. Now remember, when it comes to God so far, he's only located the conversation we're having right now about how wisdom even would fail us. When it comes to God's participation, here's what he said. He said, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So far, it seems like the preacher has only said that it's God's fault. If God's shown anything to him right now, as he's gotten to the end of his tether, it's that God's to blame. It's the, the unhappy business he feels, the hatred he has. Oh, I give my life to pleasure and I get no gain. I give my life to wisdom and I get no gain. What am I to gain? The one who gave it to me is an unhappy business he's given me. I mean, there's some raw honesty here. I hope you've beat your hand against the, the, the table of life with the preacher. I hope I'm not preaching at wind right now myself. I'm sure you felt this. It is left there um, in, in 113. And now by 217, you know, God being the one that's given this task unto the Son, uh, there is this vanity, there's this striving after the wind that the preacher wants us to do here. His hatred spills over. And it spills over into a part of the soul that tells him and hopefully you today that you need to know what you're all about. Like you have to. You can't put your hands to a project and build something if you don't know who you are. There's an identity crisis in him and he cannot complete anything in life at this point. He hates it. Why? Because he needs something bigger than his wisdom, bigger than his plans. Man, we celebrate normal success in life and we do it wrongly often. That's the point he's making here, right? I mean, man, think about it. We want, we want success in our employment. We want the job. We, we want to understand a little bit more about ourselves as we, as we finish a goal and we do a next chapter of life together with others. But this idea creeps up time and time again in the soul of the old man. The wisdom with sitting with this is to remember this, that in all the discoveries of the pleasures of his life, I mean, through building an actual kingdom, through walking the streets of, with power and privilege, he's saying that death and this idea of, of wrong wisdom whispered at him. But he was able to ignore it. I mean, in the throes of passion, in the work of building something, in the enjoyment of wine, it's really easy to silence the voice that says these things to you. But man, there was no way to silence it in the empty chamber hall as he sat there later. Man, what a business God has given to me. A terrible business indeed. I mean, simply summarized, Solomon hates his life because wisdom has ultimately failed him. Remember, he kept it, right? He never lost wisdom. He kept it through pleasure. He kept it through the end of life. And yet there it is. He hates his life. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you there? 
Have you even considered such an outlook about the things you deem in your life to be good and wise and godly? He did. He declared the things he did to be good and godly and wise. And and many of them he's saying, right now he's saying all of them, as they're disconnected from the ultimate, we'll see. All of them proved to him to be vain and short. Have you done so? Are they only truly judged the things you count as good and wise and godly? Are they judged by comparison to others in your life? Is that what makes you wise? Is you're not as in debt as them? Or you're not as struggling with your image as them? Or you're not as failed as a parent as them? Or you're not as lonely as them? Do you boast wisdom by comparison alone? Do you have a real source in God's word for what you call in your life to be good, godly, and wise? If you don't, listen to me, you're wrongly giving your heart to the same heartbreak. And we should learn from verse 17 that what is on the other end of a misled and a misunderstood wisdom is hatred. Hatred. It consumed him in his wealth, his pleasure-seeking, because he wrongly understood the earthly wisdom from God. Sure, he stands above pagans of other kingdoms in his day, but he's now asking the question, how will he stand before God? How? What, did I, what was up with all my wisdom? What did I get? So listen, to give your heart to loose living, to give your heart to pleasure is foolishness. Don't do it. But to think yourself wise in your own eyes, to, to have a standard of your own wisdom rather than God's is also foolishness. Don't give your heart to it. And then he turns and he confesses his final venture next. And he talks about giving his heart to building something. See the outworkings of his wisdom. And the warning comes to us again in the final point. Don't give your heart to work. So don't give your heart to foolishness. Don't give your heart to wisdom wrongly. Man, don't give your heart to your work either. Look in verse 18 and 19. This is real connected. You notice the same words there in 18 right at the beginning? I hated. See that? I think he wants to show that, that these are not disconnected or disjointed ideas. What was privately a, an understanding of a failure in wisdom, giving, giving his heart to it wrongly, now that hatred he has for it, oh, it, it goes straight into seeing what he hates as he's put his hands to it. Remember what Calvin said? Right here in the heart, this factory would do what? It would conceive, and yet his hands would do the building of the idol. He says, I hated all my life with which I toil worked under the sun, seeing that I must leave it, what I've built. I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be a wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. What does he say? This, you can guess it, also is vanity. His hatred continues from the last moment to this one. And Generally, it is regarded as normal throughout the centuries to, to try to leave a legacy for who comes after you. Okay, think about that idea. I mean, think about the warm affections for the idea that a son would take up their father's mantle. Uh, this has been present through, through centuries. As you're reading it now, you understand it even today. It's a tale as old as time. Solomon sees past the vanity of fairy tale. He sees into the nitty-gritty reality of what legacies left behind actually are versus what we hope them to be. His hatred earlier for the life of wisdom lived sprung from the unhelpful comparison of the fool uh, that faced the same death, right? The same leveling. 
And the idea was what now at the end, right? Why so much wisdom? And so the natural next step here is to hate those things that wisdom produced. And so he turns to all the rewards, all the gains, all the things that made him uh, to be this, and he he hates them. You know, death loosens our grip on life. We hope we are in control, and death shows us that we are not, and that we never were. But I want you to think about it in regards to this idea that Solomon toiled, just like maybe you would try to toil your whole life, and to build something great, and to leave it to the next generation. And that's what he's at here in verse 18 and 19. It's a direct outworking of giving your heart, it's a perfect example, giving your heart wrongly to wisdom, letting it produce something, and then understanding what that something is as being something left. And I just, I want to pick up again. We appreciate this. I mean, we, we highlight all the time the idea of the boy being with his dad at the workplace, right? I mean, think about it. We've seen a thousand times a young boy at his dad's shop or his business or maybe on a trip with him. We can see dad rubbing his head, right? And telling him, oh, son, one day this will all be yours. I mean, there stands little Simba, right? With Mufasa, as he learns about the circle of life. And then one day, he will be just like it as he rules the pride lands. We swell with pride with such an idea. Wisdom would puff us up to do so. But Ecclesiastes, remember, death is like a, a, a bubble. It's like, it's like a, a needle that pops the bubble of life. If the balloon that we just blew up was, shh, leave a wonderful legacy to your family. Shh. Use wisdom to build something and pass it along. Now the pinprick of death goes pop and he pops it and it points us away from this hope we have to this idea that not even a son gets it, but a man. Notice he didn't even say a son in this verse. What I must leave, I must leave it to the man who will come after me. I mean, there's a general cold and disdained understanding here. Boys grow up and they don't always want to be just like daddy. Or maybe worse, they grow up and they, don't, and they want to be, but they're incapable of being like daddy. And you can read the story for yourself, actually. You, for Solomon, if you were to go to 1 Kings and read 11 through 14, 11, 12, 13, and 14, I'm going to summarize it for you. In those chapters, Solomon's son, Rehoboam was his name, loses control of the 10 northern tribes of Israel. 80% of his father's kingdom, wealth and riches gone. Why? Because he was foolish. He was more harsh than his dad ever was. He was more idolatrous and more sinful and more devious and more perverted than his father ever was. His followers in that day became so perverse as they followed this son of Solomon, Rehoboam, that they, there was cult prostitution, male cult prostitution was common in Judah. A city that was supposed to bear God's name became a house for evil. In his lifetime, the palace was ransacked by Egypt and all the gold that we talked about last week was stolen. Rehoboam was left with nothing. Now Solomon didn't see this happen. But in his wisdom, filled with hatred, he didn't have to. You see, he learned clear enough here to realize that folly's work is to deceive you and to deceive you even with wisdom at times. And it can threaten not only you, but even those who would follow you. Wisdom was a vanity. Its pleasure was a vanity. And ultimately, its passing to the next generation is a preservation of vanity as well. 
What can an aged king and a father do in light of such conclusions? When hatred, when the hatred's gone, right? When the energy exerted there is gone, I want you to see what's left over. Look in verse 20 and 21. This father, this king, who's supposed to pass on what has been produced from his hard work, says this, I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over all the toils of my labor under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity. But he adds something though. Look, verse 21. This also is vanity and a great evil. It's a very sad tale. At one time, Solomon likely boasted and spoke only of all the amazing work he did. The intricate details of a lifetime of mastering skills. He boasts even in this, in this vanity and, and great evil um, in the verse. I mean, sadly, even in his ruinous falls, he turns to despair and he realizes that it was all worthless. He still goes on and on about how good he was, doesn't he? See that? Even in his despair, he's still knowledgeable with skill and wisdom. And yet we witness here that this is the low point. His despair is his. He's earned it. He's made his bed and he lies in it. Listen, let me be frank with you. Today there are numerous men and women in our country, in our city, um, that lack such discernment when it comes to avoiding the error the preacher is talking about when it comes to work here. You know, he hopes that eventually he'll slow down. He hopes that eventually he'll be able to enjoy maybe some more time with Rehoboam, I'm sure. And yet how many people today live in such miserable company as trying to do the next thing for the work? People come alive, right, when you talk to them about their portfolio, when you speak to people about their projects, or you talk to them about their promotion hopes, when you ask them about their projections, when you get them talking about the models that they've made or the future degrees that they will secure, when you talk to them about their raises or their prospects or their future purchases, I mean, human eyes flash and they come alive. Mouths open and out of the heart comes the hope of being a rolling stone. Everyone wants this. This may continue for years. And the question is, who can stop a rolling stone? Let me tell you, no one. No one, for good reasons. You know why? When you try to stop a rolling stone, it's going to crush you. If you try to stop a rolling stone, you're not going to be able to stop it. A rolling stone going down a mountain has to stop in the valley. I think that's the point that Solomon's making here. There's a final lurching and a stopping that has to happen in every person's life. You see, the fool will give his heart to foolishness for only so long. We talked about that already. Into the bottle comes. The high wears off. The binge weekend ends. You crawl out of bed. The wise person maybe built something beautiful, lovely, and awesome, and yet when it's over, if he did it wrongly, the rolling stone hit the bottom of the hill. And at times, the conclusion is this. Vanity which we can get with, right? Hebel, I mean, we're, we got that, Solomon. But now he adds something, a great evil. Now, there are two Hebrew words used for evil in the book of Ecclesiastes, okay? Some 20 times. But this is the first time that it's shown up for us in the book. You see, prior to this, we have seen unwise living. We've uh, talked about salaciousness. We've seen a sinful foolishness, seeking pleasure and doing those things wrong. But you know what we haven't done? We haven't called it evil till now. We haven't drawn the moral line of God until now. We haven't actually brought light and darkness. Remember, that got suspended for a moment, didn't it? The wisdom of it got suspended by death. 
All we've said is that God has brought in you know, an unhappy business for us. But we haven't tried to conclude morally what's wrong. But now he does. Now he's willing to say, this is a great evil. And this is, of course, a despair that points to the vanishing effect of life. It is about meaningless, but there's a deeper meaning there. Uh, ra'ah is the Hebrew word, and, and it's a powerful word. It means wickedness. It means depravity. It means misfortune, disaster. Now, how is it that we cannot see such ruin in the moment? Why is the person building their portfolio so deceived by every goal that they reach? Well, the preacher dares to ask it, and he takes us down the rabbit hole a little bit further. Clearer than he ever has, he reaches into his chest and after your heart and gut and, he, and, and instinct. Look in verse 22 and 23. He asks the question, what has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all of his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Following the despairing conclusion about giving his heart to work in a wrong way, we get this summary. It's not a good reflection. He asks the question, what do you gain from such long, arduous work? Now, I mean, you may have in mind of, of somebody planting and plowing a field, and that's fine and accurate for his time. But think better. Think that Solomon has been one who oversaw a thousand planted and harvested fields. Okay, guys, this guy has done a 401k better than you. He's thought about his retirement better than you and I have thought about our retirement. He has planned and propagated and executed a plan of serious enterprise. He has built a dynasty. He has stood on the very tip-top mountain of how someone can accomplish something in this life. And what does he say? It's vexing. It's full of sorrow. Vexation is a weird word. We don't say that much, but it's a good word. A sorrowful thing. Grievous. Painful. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. Wow. Is there a greater picture here? I mean, this reflection on work is known to anyone who's been anxious about work. Been so worried about what you're going to do the next day, what you're going to what you're going to say to that person, what you're going to do in that meeting, what you're going to have in that promotion. I mean, been so anxious that though you know you should lay it aside and get something called sleep, you can't do it. It just leaves your eyes. And you sit there. You know, uh, I love Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. When you study as, as the famous preacher, he's called doctor because he was a doctor before he was a preacher. And one of the most amazing things about him was is that any time he would counsel someone, no matter the issue, marriage problems, sit down with Dr. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, financial problems, sit down, any sin struggle, any counseling session, the very first thing he would always ask his people, how are you sleeping? He knew that God had given man a task for one third of his life. That's how long your eyes will be closed and you'll rest. About a third of your life will be slept away. And God's good design, God's wisdom, is for you to have it. But the man who serves the idol of work, the man who loves what he's building more than he loves the God who would let him rest, will not rest. That's the point here. And I love Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' question. So let these signs conclude the preacher has said for 42 verses now. I mean, guys, I, I, I'm worn out by preaching this this morning because we're to be worn out by the vanity that's under the sun. So we're perplexed, seemingly crushed under the weight of Hebel. 
If I can't put away my email for just a moment to enjoy a sunset, if I can't imagine my dreams of passing on my fortune to a son any more positively, if I can't balance my right wisdom with peace in my heart, and if the fool dies just like me, what am I to give my heart to? Hatred and despair fill my days, and when I, when I don't feel them, I shudder to think of what my heart really wants. That's what he's saying. So brother, sister, don't give your heart to foolishness. Don't give your heart to wisdom wrongly. Don't give your heart to work. Then where do we turn? Where can we locate our aspirations, our hopes, our goals? Where can we put our wisdom? Where can we have fun under the sun? Where can we enjoy working hard? Our final point is very surprising, finally, for all of us in this study of Ecclesiastes. You don't want to give your heart to those things. You want to give your heart to God. Verse 24 and 25, listen to what it says. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is vanity. No, that's not what it says. That's what you're expecting. I mean, I'm expecting it. Man, we're depressed up in here, right? We're all expecting it. Oh, here we go again. No, look closer. This I saw, he says, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Brother, sister, as I said, for 42 verses prior, he has been pointing out God above the sun as being possibly part of the problem, right? I mean, if he said anything about God, it's that God has given us this business, right? But it all changes. We, uh, we are here and we expect to see vanity, but Kohelet, the preacher, says, no, there is hope. It comes from the hand of God. Remember, we said in the introduction to this book, it is for the pessimist, and we know that. But I'm telling you, it's also for the optimists. It's for those who want to who refuse to believe that it's only bad. And we come to this small moment here where the preacher makes it very clear. It's clear and it's refreshing that we can give our hearts to something that's bigger than us. There is a way to enjoy work and the toil. How? Look what he says. He says, eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Now, this sounds easy enough and and fun enough. And I think our current culture would get with just that. I mean, it's easy, right? Cash the paycheck on Friday afternoon. 40 pack of, of, of Natty Light, you know, Friday night. Some gin and juice on Saturday in the club. Have a Sunday night barbecue with your friends. The account's empty. Monday comes. Do it all again. But that is not what he means when he says, eat, drink, find enjoyment in his toil. He's not just saying to do it. Now, that'd be something called uh, nihilism. It's just a fancy way of saying you reject all religious and moral principles and you just believe life's meaningless, so go get as much of it as you can. That's not what he's saying. It's not even what the Bible teaches. I mean, we need to be warned as well, even in giving uh, our hearts to the Lord here in these words of eating and drinking and finding enjoyment. We have to see them as coming from the hand of God which means that God makes the moral judgment. You see, he's come to a moral conclusion. This is great evil. But now he's going to show us that God is saying what is right and wrong about all of this, everything he's tried to investigate. Isaiah 22 shows us so well what God would say. Um, In that day, in the book of Isaiah, it says, the Lord God of hosts would call for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth. And behold, joy and gladness killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Quote, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. 
Now, Isaiah says that to a people who are misunderstanding God. And they're misunderstanding this, what, what God is actually giving from his hand. And so God would tell them, you should, when there's a time to mourn and a time to weep and, 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 and not rejoice, you would rejoice wrongly. Because you do it wrongly because of, of me, right? Without me. But he's saying, instead, there is a right way. You know, Paul picks up this um, in an intense way as he writes to the Corinthian church. Um, the Corinthian church, obviously, struggling with pleasure, struggling with pride, struggling with applying wisdom wrongly. And Paul, in his teaching about the resurrection, actually quotes Isaiah. Listen to this. Paul asks, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Quote, let us drink or let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Paul says, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, the Bible using that word again, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Again, we're in the heart of the preacher here with Paul, but he's explicitly condemning a wrong interpretation of joy and drink and enjoyment and not understanding that you have to acknowledge God. You should acknowledge God. There is only great evil under the sun if you can't get your eyes above the sun. When you get your eyes above the sun and you acknowledge God, now you're ready to realize that this is from the hand of God. Verse 26, the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom. Do you see that? But to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. Pleasing God has to center on realizing who God is. It is only him, it is only when we see and savor who God is and what he wants from us that we can begin to please him. What does God want? God wants what you and I have been talking about this whole morning, your heart. God wants your heart. How will God accomplish what he wants? Let me tell you how. He'll give. God gives. Did you see that? It is from his hand that we even start this conversation now in Ecclesiastes at this point. God gives. It is his wisdom and knowledge and joy. And all the problems we are facing in our employment of these things are only reconciled in God. God gives. He must give for anyone to please him. You cannot please God on your own. God must give so that you can please him. That's the idea. God gives of himself to us and we receive him and that pleases him. It's never the other way around. Here's our conclusion. How God gives himself so that you can give to him and please him is that God said, when a man from Nazareth, born to a father Joseph and a mother Mary, stepped into the waters of baptism as common as the next man it seemed, there was a word that God spoke over Jesus in the water. God thundered loudly so that some heard it. And he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. God said that. Well, listen, crowds formed around this God man that you and I know as Jesus Christ. 
And if there's one who pleases God who can get wisdom and knowledge and joy, Jesus proved that he ultimately is that. Jesus was willing to step below the sun so that the wisdom and knowledge and joy that you and I want to get, so that it could be seen and touched and heard and listened and experienced, Jesus walked the earth for this purpose. And crowds gathered around him. And one time a crowd gathered around him in Luke 12. And someone in that crowd said to Jesus, they said, teacher, tell me this. Tell my brother to divide the inheritance that he has with me. Okay, hold up. There's Jesus. There's this crowd. There's this guy. And this guy stands up and says, we've built something. There's a great inheritance that our father has built. It's coming to us. Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's not just his. What do you hear in even this questioning of the Lord that these men are saying? You know what you hear? You hear Ecclesiastes, don't you? We've built and toiled. Look at the work of our hands. We deserve this. It's ours. You hear wisdom. Jesus, I'm coming to you, but I already know what's right. You need to divide this, and you need to give it to, our, to me and the brother. He doesn't need it for himself. He's being selfish. Right? You hear foolishness. I really want the inheritance. <laughs> I need this money. How am I to live? Teacher, do something. But Jesus said this to them. Man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? He said to them this. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What did Jesus just say? Jesus just showed up just like the preacher's been trying to tell us and said, you will not find hope in the abundance of what your heart could get. You want possessions. You want to fill your, 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 your harem with women. You want to lead a big life, bigger than any Jew that's ever come. You want money and success. And Jesus steps in and he says, hold on a second. Am I the arbitrator? There's already a witness been raised up against you in general wisdom. So just press pause for a minute. Take a deep dive with me before I even talk about this inheritance. And man, then Jesus did something amazing that he always does. Verse 16 in Luke 12 says, and he told them a story saying this. Let me tell you a story. The land of a rich man produced plenty, a lot. And he thought to himself, the man, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store all my crops. He said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns, my barns, and I'll build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. And here it is again. Eat, drink, and be merry. But Jesus finishes the story by saying this. But God said to the man, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I want you to hear this morning that as I've labored to try to be in this text and teach from this text and, and let this text be the main thrust of our time. I admit to you, it's not fun. It's long and it's arduous. It's hard to sit with the preacher. But I want to show you that if you really want hope in the things you want to give your heart to, like me, 
the foolishness, but you think there's a way to have joy in it that's right. You know, the wisdom that you know that there must be something good in fearing God and being wise. Or the work that you want to set your mind to something you're doing right now, but you want to do it all rightly. I want you to see that the God-man Jesus Christ showed up with a sermon right there that was literally point for point what the preacher in Ecclesiastes has tried to say. And we got to hear it. But here's what's amazing. Solomon knew that one was going to come that was greater than him. And this whole book rests in that sovereign promise. And right here in our time this morning is the first, 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 boop, for the, the first point pop-up moment where if something comes from the hand of God that can be given, that can get our eyes above the sun, one, it has to come from God. Two, we have to receive it. And this is what Jesus showed up and he said, if anything were to come from God to help you in this scenario, you need to put aside all these things and see it for what it is as he stood before them. So God bears witness. You see, we have to look to Jesus. We all want to please God. These guys wanted to please God, but Jesus tells them, you must know God. You must be known by God. The way Jesus says it was, you would be rich, not toward God. You need to be rich toward God but you're poor. You're a poverty-stricken sinner. And what can you do? Friend, you must do this. Look to the founder and perfecter of our faith. You have to look to him who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God now, Hebrews 12, 2 says. His good pleasure was to be the curse of God. The one who pleased God was willing to be hated by God on our behalf so that God would be pleased with us. Saints of RBC, please conclude with me this morning that it is wisest to give up our hearts to Him. In doing so, we freely receive from the hand of God the right way to work, the right way to live out wisdom, the right way to enjoy our work, our pleasures, the good gifts of God. Now, why is that? Because the greatest gift of heaven, with your own heart, you would prepare something you think amazing that will just be given to the one who would actually please God with it. That's what he's saying to the lost. But man, with a new heart from God, one that God gives you, you have the ability to give up everything to receive even more from the hand of the one who made you. And the one who made you can give you the new heart and then leave you leave you under the sun, return to his father and sit there now. And though you do not see him, you know him and he's true to you. And now everything changes. One simple conclusion, one final understanding, it is from the hand of God. What came most dear to us from the hand of God but God's own hands (laughs) that were pierced and were for us so that we can have access to true wisdom. We can live for true joy. Let me pray and then we'll respond in song. God, I come to you this morning and I pray just what we just said. That Lord, you would take away our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. Lord, we need to see Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Even here in Ecclesiastes, our hearts echo him. Who of us can please you, God? Who of us can give wisdom? Who of us can have knowledge and joy? apart from you. Father, to the sinner has been given a horrible business, gathering, collecting, a miserable existence under the sun. This is what we've been given as sinners. 
only to be, if we won't repent, taken from us and given to those who will please you. But God, our earnest prayer this morning is that in response to you, in singing and in seeing you in the elements of the Lord's table, that this morning you would remind us again that we do not have hearts of stone. We have hearts of flesh. You've given us your son. What more is there now for heaven to give? God, help us to believe this together as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand again and respond in song.